Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Dr. Lawrence Simon, and the show, as always, is entitled The Stories We Live By. And I thought I would cover a number of topics this morning and hopefully take some phone calls uh, after a bit. Um, what I was going to talk about today is, is the myth of mental health. Now, over the last uh, weeks, I have been trying to uh, demonstrate to my listeners that the story of mental illness is just that, a phony story, in which unwanted behavior is labeled with moral labels that pose as medical diagnoses or as problems requiring the intervention of psychotherapists or as is most likely at this point, some psychiatric visits in which one takes drugs that uh, are posed as medicines. And I think I've been able to demonstrate, at least to some of you, that these moral names really aren't illnesses because there's no evidence that any medical problem exists in any of the diagnoses the hundreds of diagnoses that litter the big book of bad names known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, or the Bible of the psychiatrists, and the Bible of the psychologists, and the social workers, and everybody who deals in health insurance uh, and earns a living on the unhappiness, confusion, and misery of people uh, by putting into this lie in this story that you're ill. What is left out of all of this is the idea that um, you can be mentally healthy. And if you can't be mentally ill, you can't be mentally healthy. It's a euphemism. And I want to discuss that and then talk about what I think mental health really is if we get rid of the idea that it's health and that you need a doctor or some professional to help you achieve it, um, and that you can begin to look at this story from the outside rather than from the inside where it traps you in its language, and look at it from the outside and your life from the outside. And again, my goal is to help you, if you wish, change the story, rewrite the story that you live by so that it's more productive and healthier and more loving and more fun brings more happiness, um, less misery, etc. So, mental health, what does it mean? Well, if mental illness is unwanted behavior we call bad names, then mental health must be wanted behavior that we call good names. And that's what it is. When you behave as others or you yourself would wish, if you feel what are supposedly the right feelings, if you think what is supposedly the right thoughts, if you're comfortable in your own skin and comfortable with others, then I guess you're mentally healthy. Now, of course, the word health again comes in here, and, and that has to be looked at. Because if, in fact, mental disorders and mental illness involve a brain that's sick, then mental health must be due to a brain that's healthy. 
And if that makes some sense to you, then <laughs> dance and sing around the room because you have something that makes sense that to me makes no sense whatsoever. If I ask somebody who likes their life, why do you like it? I'm usually told because I do interesting things, because I live a life that's creative. They may not use that word, but that's really what's implied and what I really would like to talk about. They talk about a life in which somehow there's a harmony with others, that if they're adults, there's good sex in their life, good food, maybe involvement in a church or a, or a synagogue or some religion that provides them with spiritual uh, enrichment, that they get up in the morning feeling okay, that there's purpose to their life, that there's meaning to their life, um, that they enjoy living where they're living. Uh, I sat out last night. I have an apartment that overlooks the ocean, and I sat out as the sun went down, and I had uh, two or three glasses of wine and uh, a good dinner. And at that moment, life was pretty good. Now, is that because my brain is healthy? Well, obviously, if my brain genuinely wasn't healthy, and if I had a medical problem and I required a neurologist, I couldn't have enjoyed the evening as I did. But I saw that evening as the result of the fruits of my own labor, as the efforts I've made, the efforts my wife has made, to put together a life that with luck and with skill and with knowledge is the life we both want to live. And so my brain must be involved, my body must be involved. As I get older, I do worry about sickness. I fell on the tennis court not long ago, and I have a knee that will never be the same. Thirty years ago, two hours later, I probably would have been better. Um, by the way, if indeed we do find that mental illnesses or disorders in the DSM are neurological or due to chemical upsets in the brain, they won't be called mental disorders anymore. They'll be called neurological disorders. And you won't go to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, or a social work to have them fixed. You will go to a neurologist, people who are real doctors and deal in real medicine. The rest of us, when it comes to medicine, are imitation or make-believe doctors. What we really are, I think, as I've said before, are kind of philosophers, people who help examine the nature in which we live and hopefully, through the interaction with us, help people make a better choice in how to live so that they, too, have an evening such as the one I just enjoyed if that's their choice as to the kind of evening they wish to have. So, there is no mental health because there's no mental illness. What there is, is a good life. A good life. And what makes a good life? Well, I'm not very religious, so I don't really believe that it's the intercession of the spirit world or of gods or God or anything else that makes my life. I don't believe in fates. I don't believe in destiny. These are not things I've ever believed in. And as hard as I might want to believe, I can't. They just don't make sense. So I believe that much of life is luck. I think if you're born uh, uh, right now in certain parts of the United States, 
uh, your luck is running a heck of a lot better than if you're born in Baghdad, Iraq, with this terrible war going on. I think much of life is luck. By the way, I get eerie feelings when somebody tells me God decided which of us are born in a war zone and get hit by a bomb when we're two months old and God uh, endows the rest of us with a life that goes on for 80 years in which we uh, are happy and enjoy. There's just something about that that has always rubbed me the wrong way. So what's the good life? How do you live a good life? What are the elements of a good life? And I want to talk a little bit about that and some of the things and the stories that enhance a good life and prevent a good life. And that's what we're talking about. I really do believe that the good life is lived according to the golden rule and the Ten Commandments. I really do believe that a good life has to be a moral life, depending upon how you define morals. And I don't believe that morals are written in stone. They really what seem to make sense to us as human beings. And sometimes we think it's moral and we get together and we, we agree as to our morality. On the other hand, Hitler believed that the most moral thing he could do to Germany was kill six million Jews and seven million non-Jews. People forget that. Two million gypsies, all of the homosexuals, retarded people, anybody that the psychiatrist labeled as mentally deviant or mentally ill, uh, all their political enemies. When it was all done, 13 million people were destroyed in the name of creating a good life uh, uh, for the Aryans living in Germany. So obviously, uh, we can't all agree on what the morals are, but I think that the Ten Commandments give us a good run at what might be a moral life. Now, I don't believe that these will come down from on high. I think human beings work these out over uh, the eons because they create psychologically the best way to achieve some kind of purpose, meaning, and happiness in life. And so I want to define that in psychological terms and move away specifically from the moral. What makes a good life? To me, it's a balance. A balance between finding and creating a story in which your unique self can express itself. And at the same time, a story in which you can love and be loved by others. Sounds simple? Well, I guess it can't be simple because how many of us achieve such a life? I do believe it's achievable. I think it's always a struggle. And again, I think certain amount of luck is involved, particularly when it comes to the story that is written for you when you first begin your life. What kind of story will that be? Will you come into an authoritarian world in which individuality and the expression of your individual needs and interests uh, is called selfishness and my favorite word, disobedience, in which uh, if you deviate from the norms of your group, of your family, of your church, uh, you're considered mentally disturbed or a sinner, and the harshest of punishments and labels have to be addressed against you and placed against you so that you can conform down the line to what is the right thoughts and the right feelings and the right actions. 
uh, I think that becomes oppressive, and people do become serious victims of oppression, the political oppression that can exist in such families and such churches, in such schools, and in such societies. On the other side, uh, I think that uh, we need other people as we express our individuality. And if what we do, if what we create is used to wound and hurt others purposefully, uh, and we end up in prison, or we end up in a mental hospital, uh, because we find that we cannot uh, negotiate some kind of loving relationship, supportive relationship, something that gives us dignity and the, those around us allows them their dignity, then I think we're equally miserable. So an individual without a loving family, without a loving group, without a warm, supportive school, church, if that's what's chosen, a political process that's democratic, I think is a very unhappy individual. And then uses all kinds of defenses involving drugs, alcohol, violence. Uh, uh, you know, it's not enough to think that you're just a good person, but you have to be a perfect person. You have to think that you're God, that you can't make mistakes. And all of this leads to a kind of, in my experience, a misery for yourself and others. That somehow the good life recognizes this, that every one of us is the same, and every one of us is unique and different. And it is that sameness with others and that uniqueness that has to somehow be balanced out in the way we construct the story of our lives. And the struggle is to find a way to change those stories that have us alienated from others or have us absorbed by others. Where we go to work and have a boss and hate him but kiss his ass anyway. Where we find ourselves flattering people. Uh, uh, where we're terrified to even think about what we want or what we might deserve in our own lives. Um, and when I say create, by the way, you don't have to be an artist. That's recognized. Although I love the saying by Oscar Wilde, famous writer, that a life not lived as if it was a work of art is misery. It's empty. Um, over the years, when I have spoken with people, students and people who have come to me, and I say, what do you love to do? There's always something at the heart of their life that gives them great pleasure. My pleasure is in creating these shows right now. And it really is a great pleasure for me to do this. I had a student who, when we were discussing this, came alive. Her joy was making fruitcakes over Christmas. I'll never forget that. And each year she tries to better the fruitcakes that she made. And while she hopes others would like them and gets great pleasure if her fruitcakes are enjoyed, and by the way, she brought in a fruitcake uh, uh, for the class to taste, and it was a marvel. It was dense and rich and tasty and filled with all kinds of good things and flavors. Um, but it was her expression, and it didn't have to make a lot of money, and it didn't have to make her famous. It was this piece of her that evolved 
that was at the center of her story that said, this is what I can do, and no one else can do it just the way I do it. My fruitcake is unique. And I have hundreds and hundreds of such stories. And it's always a joy when you see somebody who has been able to escape from the oppression of political systems in order to find that unique something that they wish to express. Or find a way back to people and the institutions of society in such a way as they can get recognition, they can earn a living, they can do the things that are necessary uh, to, to love, be loved, to have pride uh, in themselves and others. I think pride is absolutely necessary. Love is necessary. Um, by the way, in terms of, of what we create, I never understood. I don't understand why people really are different. I'm told it's genetics, and I'm sure that genetics has something to do with it. But I think it's, it's something uh, that we don't quite really understand. I, I call it factor X, uh, X, Y, and Z. Uh, why does some child, almost from the beginning, love bugs, and someone else loves sports, and some kid looks at cooking or dance and says, that's what I want to do? Um, music, art, mathematics. I never understood how anybody could love math, but you talk to those professors that I worked with over the years, and they talk about mathematics and their eyes glow. And, and the worst thing would be to prevent them from working on their mathematics and teaching their mathematics and trying to turn on others to their mathematics. And as with psychology, which has been my joy, when a student comes to me and said, I love psychology and I want to make it my life because of what has had transpired in this class with you, uh, it is a feeling that money can't buy. And I'm sure the same thing is true for someone who becomes a chef uh, uh, because a parent taught them to cook uh, or went to paint or dance uh, or became a baseball player or a basketball player. And by the way, whenever I see somebody with the joy of unique expression in what they do and yet at the same time being able to be part of a team, to be part of the larger society, uh, I marvel at it because I know how lucky uh, uh, we are, those of us who experience uh, the life that I'm describing. Finally, I want to talk about one of the, what I call the curse of perfection. Um, because so many of us experience so much of put-down in our lives, so much of the interaction between people takes place with moral labels backed up by force. For most of us, by the time we get out of childhood, we can't take responsibility for our own actions. We can't take responsibility for the lives or those parts of our lives and our story we've constructed because we can't tolerate the idea that maybe we're to blame or maybe we did wrong. It's always a marvel to see how people will recognize themselves as victims, justifiably so, but cannot at all see how they've victimized others or victimized themselves. That they've been hit over the head, so to speak, with a hammer, and now they're hitting others and themselves 
with a very similar kind of hammer, and they can't take responsibility for it. They can do no wrong. Uh, this becomes really ugly when people uh, link themselves with the idea of a perfect God. If God exists and God is perfect, it ain't us. No gods, no gods here. Just human beings. And one of the difficulties that really arise is when we feel we have to be perfect in some way. Because we never really define what perfection is. It can't be achieved, and we don't even know what it would be if we did achieve it. But we find ourselves driven now to live a life that always has a goal other than what we think it's it is. And in my final few minutes, I just want to introduce another idea that relates to this uh, that I'll make as a show in the future. And that's the difference between work and play. Play is anything you do for its own sake. Right? If you take a walk because you love taking a walk or you bake a cake or you make a broadcast like this, which has no other goal other than the sheer pleasure of doing the activity you're playing. We make this big mistake and say children play and adults work. Life, if we're lucky and live the right story, is filled with play. Anybody who shows up at their job and loves it and would do it for its own sake and even finds themselves saying things like, gee, I would do this even if I wasn't being paid, although I have to be paid because I have a mortgage, car payments, and food to put on the table for my family, for myself. That's play. Work is anything you do for a reward outside of the activity itself. So if these shows make me famous and I get rich, then I'll have been working. The job that you love is also work if you're paid for it. Right? So the money is external to the activity that you're doing because you can get paid for any job that you do as long as the boss likes it or you uh, uh, find you're effective at the work and you're paid for it or if you're admired or if you're respected, you're working. The search for perfection makes almost all of life work. Because the activity is always, look how good I am, rather than I'm enjoying the job. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. It literally destroys the pleasure and much of the creativity that's involved, I think, in doing a, a, a job for its own sake or an activity for its own sake. Unfortunately, many children don't ever play. They have to work. They have to constantly please people adults or teachers who are ever critical of them. They never are told, just enjoy yourself, because you have to listen to me. You have to be perfect in the way I tell you to be perfect. In other words, a, a child in the street who's trying to survive or has nothing to eat is working very, very hard. There is very little play for a, situa a child in that kind of a situation. So what we have is an interesting situation in which lucky adults, and again, so much of this, I believe, is luck, uh, but are not good efforts, spend their life playing, and children uh, work. 
so that there is no correlation between work and play and age. You can be working or playing at any point. And I used to beg my students and those who would come to see me and my own children, find something that resonates with your soul. Find something to do. Not simply how much money you're going to make. When you only work, I don't have to tell you how slow the time goes. I've had periods where when I taught or work with people I didn't like, it was all work. I don't have to tell you that if you have a job that you hate, you do it only for the money. Getting up in the morning is a long, depressing activity. Driving or taking the train or commuting is awful. And then sitting and watching your watch as the seconds pass by slowly, slowly, slowly is awful. I don't have to tell you that when you're playing, when you're creating, when you're doing what you enjoy, you wonder where did the time go. It speeds by. One of the emotions that's interesting is the emotion of boredom. Whenever you're bored... It's really a form of anxiety. I believe boredom is saying to you, you are saying to yourself in boredom, I'm wasting my life. This is not what I want to do. Either I'm doing something I should do, or it's something I want to do, but right now all I'm doing is passing time. Time is spinning by, and I'm wasting my life, my creativity, my energy, my one single life. Well, I think I've done enough for this morning. I think I've covered. Um, next Monday, for those of you who might have been gotten used to this show, on Monday, I'll be on the road. With any luck, I'll be somewhere between Richmond, Virginia, and uh, Savannah, Georgia. So I don't think I'm going to do a show next Monday. But I think I'm going to do one on Thursday. Uh, and I... I got an email from a former student who apparently was listening uh, to this show or was on psychtruth.org and reading my blog and thanked me for alerting her to the fact that there's no such thing as a medical problem involving addiction. And I thought that my next show would deal with addiction and the myth of addiction, the false story that if you drink too much or you take drugs, that you're not supposed to, that you have an incurable disease and must forever stay away from drugs or alcohol. And I'll tell you some very interesting stories uh, uh, and help you change that particular story. So until next time, this is Dr. Lawrence Simon, and I'm going to hold on if there are any calls. You can call 646-716-7756. 646-716-7756. Okay? I hope to talk to you next week. Goodbye.